If there's one thing Kohler knows, it's innovative sink design. So that got me wondering, do my colleagues at America's Test Kitchen know how to fill in the blank? Hello? Hey, Caroline, it's Bridget. I need you to finish the sentence for me. Okay. Everything but the... Everything but the... Hmm. Um... Cat dragged in? Old fish in the freezer. The peanut butter. Everything but the kitchen sink. For everything, including the kitchen sink, there's Kohler. Because they know that in the kitchen, the sink is where clean begins. Kohler's Artifacts Touchless Kitchen Faucet has a precision sensor built right into the spout, so a simple wave of your hand turns the faucet on and off in 20 milliseconds. We're all spending more time at home right now, so why not enjoy a more hygienic kitchen? Wash your hands or your produce without ever touching a faucet. Learn more about the Kohler Artifacts Touchless Kitchen Faucet at Kohler.com clean. Hey, Proof listeners, Bridget Lancaster here, and we are working on Proof Season 5. But in the meantime, we're bringing you yet another bonus episode. Now, back in Season 1, we talked with flavor historian, writer, journalist, Nadia Berenstein, all about flavorists. And those are the professionals that are charged with creating new combinations and presentations of flavor compounds. And we discussed their role in the world of synthetic flavors, to be specific. That interview can be found in our Bean Boozled episode, and I highly recommend, if you haven't already listened to it, that you go listen to it right after you listen to this bonus episode. It's one of my favorite episodes so far. Now, Nadia is back with us, and we're so glad, because today we're discussing newer technologies in the world of alcoholic beverages, and how these new technologies can affect flavor, aging, as well as the very identity of wine and spirits. So, Nadia, welcome back to our show. Hi, Bridget. I'm so glad to be back on Proof. And we're so glad to have you because you know actually how to define taste. So first I want to um, address an article that you wrote a few years ago in Popular Science. And you wrote about how companies were acting almost as disruptors to the winemaking process, the industry. Some people were trying to redefine the process of making wine maybe without even touching a grape, and others were using methods, new methods, to try to replicate specific brands of wine or types of wine. So can you tell us a little bit more about that article and what you found? Sure. So one of the companies that I was writing about actually has the name Replica Wines, and they are in the business of producing what they call master forgeries of other successful kind of like big ticket wines. So they've got all kinds of uh, cheeky names like pickpocket, knockoff, label envy. (laughs) And they claim to be reproducing kind of like highly rated Napa Valley, Reds, Oregon, Pinot Noirs, and giving you or giving consumers something that is nearly indistinguishable from these 70 or $80 bottles of wine for about $30 to $50. So I had the chance to try these side by side a few years ago. And full disclosure, I am not a professional wine taster. And I'm also not really, I'm not really into these kind of big, big reds, Napa Valley reds, but they tasted 
really similar to me. I think what I said was, if you gave me a glass of one, I drank it, and then you gave me a glass of the second one, I would not know that the wine had been replaced. I would think that everything was that everything was hunky-dory. I was still drinking the same wine. It's amazing. So I think that to begin, we should start by dismantling, might be the right word, dismantling two binaries that we just tend to automatically apply to the way that we judge the qualities of food and the value of the food that we eat. One of those binaries is real and fake. We reflexively think of the fake thing as somehow lesser than the real thing, but the relationship between the two is much more complicated than that. So let's just set aside this distinction because I think that it's not really the best way to look at this issue. Okay. The second binary that we want to dismantle, that we should begin by dismantling, is the binary between food and chemicals. You've probably heard countless people refer to, you know, some food, Cheetos, for instance, as, oh, that's not real food, that's just chemicals. So the truth is, chemistry is just basically a system for describing the material world. We're all made of chemicals. Chemicals are matter. So to make a distinction between some things as food and some things as chemicals can lead people into a lot of blind alleys. And, you know, this is not to say that all chemicals are safe. Sure. But that the automatic fear that many people have, or distrust that many people have towards things that have chemical names is unfortunate. There are better ways, I think, of thinking about the food supply and thinking about the food system. So how exactly does one go about replicating an already established type or brand of wine? So the way that Replica does it is they begin with chemical analysis and with a kind of chemical analysis that tries to tie together the chemistry of wine to the way that we experience it. So they look at what they call the macro components of the wine, things like the acidity, the level of residual sugars, the tannins that are present. And then they look at what they call the micro components, which are all of the flavor molecules that are present in really, really small amounts. And then they take other less prestigious, less pedigreed wines from elsewhere, I think in the United States. They have these chemical maps of their sensory properties and they blend them together so they kind of match the big things, like the alcohol level, the acidity, the tannins, the things that give you the sort of taste and structure of wine in your mouth. And then they're also trying to map the microcomponents as much as possible, the hundreds of volatile compounds that kind of spring off the surface of your wine glass, hit your olfactory center and give you that, that full-bodied aroma of the wine. So they can't do it perfectly, but they claim around a 90% replication rate. So basically, they're just using different materials, wine from other grapes, to give you something that is close to the big ticket item. I think 90% is pretty respectable. 
especially if you are talking about two very different price points for people and and asking people what they might enjoy about a specific type of wine or a specific label, really honing in on the traits that people enjoy and then trying to replicate that at a lower price point. Why not? I'm all for it, especially if it means it's a two for one. You get two bottles for the price of one. Right. The other company that I was looking at, or which was at that point more like a, I don't know, like a side project, was a couple of uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who in their spare time were trying to essentially make a copy of a 1992 fancy champagne, starting with ethanol, with just alcohol, and then adding flavor chemicals to it to try to duplicate the taste of this champagne, of this schmancy, fancy champagne. This is a different kind of thing, right? And it wasn't even, not even necessarily clear whether it could call itself wine. In fact, I don't think that it can because no grapes were involved. Right. So this venture has evolved into a company called Endless West, which is making molecular spirits. They have a beverage that is called Gemello, Italian for twin. Ah. And how this is made is they start with ethanol and then they add flavor chemicals to it, aroma chemicals to it. It's a white wine and it's based on chemical analysis of Italian whites. They describe it as Unapologetically indulgent, lightly effervescent, with notes of orange blossom and mango, hints of peach and lychee. So, I mean, very much the way that you would might see wine described on a menu at a restaurant. And based on this kind of chemical analysis, just adding flavor compounds that are already likely in wines back to it. What they also say about this wine is that making it takes 95% less water. 80% less land, and has a carbon footprint that's 40% smaller than conventionally made actual wine. So there is an argument for thinking about this world of taste and chemistry that if we could just let go a little bit of that romance, that maybe we could get things that taste good and that are perhaps better for the planet. We tend to think of naturally made things as better for the planet, but in the case of a lot of flavor compounds, it's not necessarily the case, at least when you're looking at it from the point of view of um, of carbon footprint or water usage or waste production or human economies. Well, now you're getting into the definition of what specific spirits are. Is it a wine if it's not made with grapes? And I know that there's something similar going on in the whiskey industry. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found on that? Because I know that's something that's been interesting you as well. So with whiskey, right, everybody knows that when you go to the store, when you look at whiskey or scotch, one of the big numbers on the front of the bottle is the amount of time that has been aged. So the question is, why? What does aging do? Essentially, what you're running is this kind of like slow chemical process of transformation and change. Different components in the whiskey, in the young whiskey, react with each other, react with some of the oxygen that might be in the barrel, 
and react with other components that are being leached out of the wood. And these compounds change what we taste. Whiskey becomes darker. It becomes mellower. It becomes more fragrant. Certain kinds of really delicious and desirable notes emerge. Similar to wine, a big hurdle when it comes to making whiskey is storage. And the other big hurdle is time. You can drink a a pretty new wine. A new scotch is, you know, at least a good new scotch, I think, is at least eight years old, if not longer. When you age something, like, it demands a—that's a big investment. You've got to keep these vets under certain conditions. The years that you're aging a spirit are years that you can't sell it. Different kinds of tax structures come into play. I mean, that's why— A 20-year-old whiskey is expensive because all of that has a cost. So there are a bunch of companies, actually, that are trying to come up with ways to, I won't say speed up the aging process because that's not exactly what they're doing, I think. What they're doing is they're trying to replicate or produce the effects, the chemical changes that occur during aging in compressed time periods. So some of these are proprietary, but they involve different kinds of chemical extractions from wood, like replicating seasonal periods of cooling and heating. Essentially, they know what changes they want to see. And what they're doing is using different conditions to try to make those changes, make those chemical reactions happen faster. They're basically forcing a different environment for this whiskey to live in to try to mimic what would happen inside of a barrel. Are they able to mimic what's happening with the wood? Because the wood is definitely a part of the recipe. I'm not a whiskey person, and I haven't actually tasted these. But from most accounts, they're doing a pretty good job. What they're producing, you know, in six months seem to give the same kind of effects that you see with a whiskey that's been aged for much longer. And you can actually check this in part by doing chemical analysis. That I find really interesting. So some of this, I would imagine, allows distillers to be able to try new things at a quicker pace. That is such a good point. And I think that you're absolutely right. It also allows distillers to more quickly respond to changes in the market or changes in what people want to drink. Probably millions or billions of dollars that are spent on trend researching, right, on trying to figure out what Americans want to eat or drink next, are premised on the idea that our palates and our desires change. Wine and whiskey, these are huge industries. Imagine that you're a whiskey distiller and you've got something that's aging in a cask and it's got eight years to go. And in the meantime, just this palate shift happens and people start to get more into bourbon flavors or rye flavors. By the time your whiskey is ready to drink, the drinkers that you assumed would be there for it are gone. And this actually goes back to a weird episode in in 19th century history when the flavor industry was just getting going. One of the first markets for flavor additives was actually spirits. 
In the 19th century, this new distillation technology called the continuous still was produced, and it was really, really good at making ethanol, making alcohol that doesn't have any of the, you know, higher carbon alcohol compounds that might kill you or make you go blind, but which also didn't have any of the flavor. So the young flavor industry in the 1870s, 1880s start selling all of these additives that you can add to essentially ethanol to make all kinds of, you know, whiskey or bourbon or gin. And you could make those essentially at a moment's notice. And one of the arguments for these substances was that it allowed spirits merchants in different markets to rapidly adapt to changing desires of their clientele. Yeah, I can see the huge appeal of that. Like you said, if you're sitting on a warehouse full of 20-year barrels that your customer base has moved on and now they're drinking, you know, Alabama Slammers or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, or Fireball. Right. (laughs) There's something noble and honorable and cool about deploying chemical technology, chemical analytic technology to give you an elite experience at a lower price point. But I think this is also where we kind of go from the idea of flavor as chemicals and start kind of getting into this other aspect of flavor, which is the social, cultural, and other types of meanings that we associate with flavor and where it comes from and how it's made. Coffee gets a similar treatment in the way that it's discussed. Yeah, a lot of foods do. And this is not a necessarily traditional way of thinking about luxury foods or foods that we consume for flavor like wine or coffee or chocolate, that the rise of, you know, the idea of single origin beans or bean to bar is something that is historically particular to the moment that we're living in and maybe is in part a response to what people perceive as the artificialness or the threat of of chemical technologies, of dudes, because they're usually pictured as dudes, in lab coats, like tinkering with the things that we eat. The thing is, though, we're also tasting the stories. We're tasting the histories. We're tasting the illusion around the product that we're consuming. And that affects how we think about wine and how we perceive its value, You've probably heard of some variation of this psychological test where a researcher gives people different glasses of the same red wine, telling them that one glass comes from a bottle that is worth $100 and another from a bottle that's worth $10. And people almost always say that they like the more, that the more expensive wine tastes better and that the cheaper wine tastes worse. The way that people sometimes read the moral of that story is that We're all idiots. (laughs) And if you just tell us that something is expensive, then we'll think, oh, and we'll like it more. But I think that it's uh, the moral of the story is actually a little bit different. It's the attitude that we approach things with and all of the kind of social and cultural values that are embedded in how we experience the world shape our experience of flavor. You can't extricate them from that experience. So even if you make chemically identical products, there's something about the story of winemaking, regardless of how close that story is to the truth, that we taste and that shapes our experience. And I don't think that that is necessarily negligible. 
What are consumers thinking about this? That's a good question. And it's really hard to speak for all consumers or what they're looking for in wine and spirits. I think that there is a a kind of resurgence of interest in the stories of where things come from. So take something like natural wine, sometimes called low intervention or no intervention wine, which is, I'm in Brooklyn and it's been having a moment here for the past three years. But basically, these are the kinds of wines that are made, you know, using wild yeasts and using as little intervention as possible. So kind of eschewing all of these chemical techniques that we've just talked about. What that means is that sometimes you get a bottle and it's cloudy and this like weird murky orange color, and it kind of tastes like bong water and armpit. And if you're a certain kind of wine drinker, you're like, Oh, like a traditional <laughs> wine drinker. But if you're somebody like me, full disclosure, you try a sip of it and you're like, oh my God, bong water with just the lightest hit of armpit. I have never <laughs> tasted that in a wine before. That is cool. But our palate is changing. And I think one of the things that attracts people to the idea of natural wine is this idea that they're tasting something that is almost a metaphysical quality which is not to say that there's no virtue or value in the kind of chemical tinkering that goes on in other places. In a sense, that too is a craft. It depends what kinds of stories you're into, but there's no reason you can't enjoy both. Right. I agree. I love both. I love the idea of both. But I've learned a few things. I've learned to re-examine how I view the beverages that I've been consuming in my adult life. I've learned to be more open to new processes that um, maybe aren't necessarily looking to replicate what's always been there, but maybe even create a new beverage. And I've also learned that if you and I have dinner together, I am choosing the wine. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers. So thanks so much again to Nadia Berenstein. And you can find out more about her work, see all the things that she's written on her Twitter account. That's at The Bird Is Gone. And thanks to you, the listener, for listening to another bonus episode of Proof. Bye for now. <laughs>